Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I found myself thinking as I'm listening to the speeches how Logos is rising here. There's a convergence of, of thought here. You know, I was thinking of Patrick talking about Derrida. I remember being in graduate school when deconstruction was the latest dance craze. <laughs> it was like disco, and that was the 70s. And I remember thinking, this is crazy, but I couldn't find anybody to agree with me because a deconstructor is someone who makes you a proposition you can't understand. <laughs> and then I thought of Luke talking about beauty uh, because I'm doing a book on beauty right now. This is the book that's going to be the, the sequel to Logos Rising because uh, beauty is a transcendental. It's right up there with the good and the true. And there have been times in human history when people couldn't articulate what they were doing. They couldn't articulate it, but they could make it. And they could create beauty in a way that articulated the transcendent in a way that their philosophy could not do. And so, and I, I remember thinking too here uh, about the journey that all of these people, uh, a whole generation has taken um, the, the most, uh, through the most destructive form of social engineering in human history, which attacks your very soul uh, by using sexual liberation as a form of political control. And then who do I bump into? But my buddy Roosh here, <laughs> who, uh, went far above, above and beyond the call of duty when it came to sexual liberation. The Don Juan of our age, 1003 in Spain alone. <laughs> and uh, lived to tell the tale uh, and showed up in my backyard and we had a little interview uh, about uh, his, his adventures. And so we're all brought together here uh, for a purpose because uh, we're in a state of crisis. We're living through the end of the American empire, must as Christians before us live through the end of the Roman empire. When my barbaric German ancestors crossed the Rhine and the Danube rivers and put an end to an empire which was a thousand years old and like, unlike ours, an empire that was synonymous with civilization. So what guideposts do we have to help us negotiate this period in history? First one in Latin, motus infine velocior. I know I don't have to translate that for you, but I will anyway. Motion at the end accelerates. And so history uh, the history of decline is like a curveball. And if you think of the beginning of this decline, let's say with the Protestant Reformation, I hope I don't offend anyone here, um, but uh, the, Luther broke with the church in 1517. 
And it took until 1929 before any Christian denomination broke with the teaching on birth control. That's over 400 years. And then if you take the speed of sex, sexual and social decline from 1929 today, you can see it going faster and faster, just dropping like a curveball to the point where we are right now. And then uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Hegel, who says, the Euler von Minerva begins meist mit dem Einbrechen von der Dämmerung, ihren Flug. The owl of Minerva begins its flight always at twilight. What does that mean? What is the owl of Minerva? It's wisdom. And wisdom comes to us at twilight, the twilight of our culture, the twilight of the empire. So we're in that stage right now where the consciousness is emerging at a much faster rate than before because the decline is happening at a much greater rate than before. And we simply can't rely on anything anymore. You can't rely on the customs that your parents and your grandparents depended on. Even in America, a place that had customs, even in a place like Argos, Indiana, which had customs and we're watching them erode with incredible speed right now. So at times like this, we get together and we say, well, what can we do? What can we do? And Mike gave us a lot of examples of what we could do. Uh, but I'm going to ask another question. That question is, what can God do? Well, the answer to that is that God can do anything. God is the creator of heaven and earth, and he's the ruler of space and time. So do we believe that? Does anyone here not believe that? Raise your hand and they'll beat you up after the, uh, <laughs> we will punch you instead of the pinata. <laughs> well, if, if we believe that, if God is the ruler of time, then God's in charge of human history. So if we want to be effective in what we do, we should understand how God is moving in human history and join up with him because he's got the plan. Now, I had a, an incident in South Bend, Indiana, where it was raining and I was taking a walk and this black lady came up to me and she said, do you have a cell phone? I said, no, I'm the only guy in South Bend that doesn't have a cell phone. And she said, well, I need to call my mama. I'm going to kill myself. And she started walking toward the railing over the St. Joe River and was going to throw herself into the river because nobody loves me, she said. So I said to her, God has a plan for your life. And I tried to explain that for a while to her. Uh, and eventually uh, I said a prayer because I didn't know what else to say. And she had moved uh, onto the ledge, a na narrow part of the ledge, even farther away. And uh, I kept trying to talk to her. And she kept saying nobody loved her. So I said a prayer. And at that point she turned around and walked back and got over the wall. And she's probably alive today. Now, if I had started out on that walk five minutes later, or if she had started out 
on that walk five minutes earlier, we never would have met. So that was meant that that was God's plan from all eternity, that the two of us should come together on that bridge. Now at that point, free will kicks in because I could have said, sorry, I gotta go, and I could have walked past, and she could have said to me, tough luck, and she could have jumped in the river. So it all came down to this collaboration between an, an eternal plan and our free will. That's the key of what I'm trying to say here today. What is God's plan, and how does our free will correspond to God's plan? That's what we have to do. That's what we have to figure out right now. Now, Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Most of the time, what we say is, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. <laughs> and so as a result, we can't pick out God's plan. Now, if your life is dominated by lust and your passions, you can't hear anything anyway, because there's this din and it's just drowning out everything. So there, how do we know God's plan? Sometimes we only know it in retrospect. There's the, the incident on the bridge. That was God's plan. But there are two sources for knowledge of how God acts in human history. They're faith and reason. By faith, we mean revelation, which is the story of God, how he explained his plan to the Hebrew people. And by reason, we mean philosophy or the history of logos, which is how the Greek people figured out that plan on their own. For our purposes, that story began three or 4,000 years ago. At that moment in time, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and settled in what is now Palestine or Israel, depending on your politics or your theology. Abraham's uh, grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons, but the one he loved the most was Joseph. And because of that fact, all of his older brothers hated him and plotted to kill him and would have killed him if his brother Reuben hadn't intervened and persuaded them to sell Joseph into slavery instead. Was God in charge of human history at that point? He sure was. Because we knew that Joseph would end up, because God knew, we didn't, that Joseph would end up in charge of the granaries of Egypt at a time when famine stalked the land of Israel, and that the brothers who wanted to kill him would end up coming to him and asking him for help. God allowed this to happen so that Joseph could say, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God into good. And he wanted Joseph to say that because it contains the meaning of human history. God allows evil to bring about good. He has to allow evil because the only way he could ban evil is by banning free will. And the only way he can ban free will is by banning rationality because you as a human being choose the good. Animals don't. They have mechanisms that choose it for them. And so the only way he can get rid of evil is to get rid of human beings, and he's not going to do that. For 300 years, the Hebrews flourished in Egypt, but then a pharaoh came to the throne who knew not Joseph, and trouble began until things got so bad that Moses had to lead God's people out of Egypt back to Israel, 
Once again, the Hebrew people could say to their enemies, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. The Exodus took place at around 1300 BC. At around the same time, the world was coming to an end north of Egypt in the Aegean, in the area now known as Greece or Turkey. There was a high civilization there at the time known as the Minoan civilization. And we know that because we discovered their palaces in Crete containing their written languages known as Linear A and Linear B. That civilization disappeared forever around the time of Moses. And the symbol of that destruction is the story of the fall of Troy, which Homer immortalized in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer's epics did not get written down until the 8th century BC, largely because the collapse of civilization, which occurred at the time of the fall of Troy, was so great that no one knew how to write anymore. Homer was the beginning of a movement of history toward Logos, toward an understanding of Logos. If by history we mean some written account, it took 400 years before Homer got into writing, before they wrote down that, that epic. Every man who lived after the fall, no matter how primitive, knew there was a God, that that God was in some sense a masculine figure and that he lived in the sky. At this point, human imagination took over and the God who was the great man was given a beard and a wife. And the best account we now have that is called mythology. And Homer is the best example of that. This is, this is not, this, by the time this got written down, there were people who understood that this is inadequate an inadequate description of God. If, if there can't be gods, and if they're gods, they can't be fighting with each other over some chick by the name of Helen. And all of this drama, this kind of soap opera drama, this cannot be God. And there were Greeks who were smart enough to understand that. And they were called physiologoi, or what we would call physicists. And the first man uh, of this group uh, who started uh, writing around the same time that Homer came into writing was Thales of Miletus. And he said that there has to be some unifying principle here. And he looked around, living on the Eugene, he said, it must be water. So everything is water. Okay, well, that got the ball rolling. It's not adequate. And then Anaximenes came along and he said, no, no, everything is air because you're surrounded by air. I know you need water to live, but you're surrounded by air and air goes in and out of you. And, and it's, it's the word for spirit is also the word for soul. And when you die, you, you breathe your last. And so it's air, but it wasn't air. And then we had another uh, physicist uh, by the name of Heraclitus who lived in Ephesus and was a Greek-speaking citizen of the Persian Empire, and he said it's fire. And he said it's fire because if you look at a flame, it's always changing and it's always the same. 
And that's what life is like. It's always changing. It's always the same. And we have the most famous word, uh, the f famous image that we have from Heraclitus is you can't step into the same river twice. These two traditions came together when St. John wrote his gospel, and he wrote it in Greek. The two traditions I'm talking about, the Hebrew tradition, where God speaks to you directly, as he spoke to Moses, but when he spoke to Moses, he spoke in a kind of metaphysical way that I'm sure Moses didn't understand. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody understood it for 2,000 years because when Moses said, well, let me tell me who you are so I can tell these people, he said, I am who am. Well, he could have said, I am self-subsistent being. But nobody would have understood that because nobody understood I am who am either. And so it took a long time for Logos to develop before people understood in a sophisticated way what ultimate reality was because it's no physical thing. It can't be a physical thing. That's where the physiologi, they tried, but it's not going to be a physical thing. It's not going to be physical in any way that we know. And the closest word we have to that understanding of transcendent reality is Logos. And so when John uh, is in a situation where suddenly the Jews who killed Christ and who are enemies of the entire human race, by the way, I have to, a little aside here. I was having dinner with a graduate student in theology at, for, at Notre Dame University. And so I said to her, who said um, the Jews are the people who killed Christ and enemies of the entire human race. And she said, without missing a beat, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> it was actually St. Paul. So we have a graduate student in Notre Dame who had never read 1 Thessalonians 2. But I digress. Uh, St. Paul had been expelled from the synagogues. He could no longer speak to the Jews, and he had a dream about this Greek beckoning to him from across the Aegean. And he went uh, across the Aegean, and he went to Athens, and he went to the, the, the top uh, group of philosophers in Athens, a uh, group called the Areopagus. And he gave the wrong speech. I'm sorry. But he gave the Ephesus speech in Athens. The Ephesus, Ephesus was a place that was based on, the economy was based on making little silver images of uh, Diana uh, with her multiple breasts. Uh, that was not the Areopagus. They were philosophers. They understood things like the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. They understood that Plato said that God was the demiorgos, the worker for the people, and they understood that nobody could bring that together. They were incoherent. It was impossible. How can you be transcendent in eternity and care for you? Well, that's impossible. And that was the impasse of Greek philosophy until uh, St. John, I think cognizant of Paul's failure at the Areopagus, wrote his prologue, his metaphysical prologue to the gospel, in which he said, in arche en ha logos. In the beginning, there was logos. There was never a time when there wasn't logos. There was never chaos. As long as there is being, there is logos. Okay? Kai logos en prostheon, and logos is with God. Oh, I don't know what that means. That's really 
I don't know, what does that mean? And then the third one, which is easier to understand, kylogos and theos. And logos is God. Now that's a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss, and it took the church 300 years of discussion before they could bring two words together, namely the word son, as in father, son, and logos. How do these two words relate? And it turns out that they relate. The word that connects them is called the Trinity. And that took a long time, and it took a lot of struggle, and the struggle uh, invariably involved the enemies of Logos, uh, namely uh, the Jews, who sided with the Arians, who were determined, who had this investment in God just being one, and did not want to see this sophistication develop, and so they did everything within their power to thwart it, and uh, in a sense, it's a miracle that they didn't succeed because this is not easy. This is not simple because, I mean, to, let's give Arius credit for what he said. Look, he said the, the father precedes the son. Can you have a, a son without a father? Well, that must mean that there was a time when the son was not. And if there were ever a time when the son was not, he's not, he's a creature. And if he's a creature, he's not God. And so there's no Trinity. Well, that's hard. It takes a very sophisticated mind to go beyond that. And that's exactly what the church had to do. And the problem here is, at this point, this is like the train of history. This is Logos in human history. And either you get on the train or the train leaves the station without you. And the main group that got left standing on the platform were the Muslims. Islam got its idea of Jesus Christ from the Nestorians who didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. This, this seems like, why do I have to know this? I had long conversation, years of conversation with a, a Muslim woman from Iran. And, you know, we started off, we're just talking. He said, I don't, look, I don't want to do Christian-Muslim dialogue. I don't, I'm not interested in that. I just want to talk about Logos. I said, I said let's have unprotected intercourse <laughs> because I was inspired by Roosh at that point. <laughs> but she, she understood what I was talking about. And so we just talked and we talked about Logos and she, she, she reached a point where she said, you're right. Logos is God. You're right. And so she's not a Muslim. She's not a Muslim. And she gets mad at you if, if, she, if, you, claim, if you talk to her that way. And then she get, feels down, and then she says, well, is that it? And I said, no, there's more to it. Well, she said, well, what is it? And I said, baptism. And she says, she's enraged. What's that got to do with Logos? You mean you pour water on my head, and somehow that makes a difference? This is the type of consciousness that is developing in our day right now because we are forced to it, because we're forced together. I was forced together with the Iranians because of uh, America's foreign policy and their support of Israel. And God is going to take that evil and he's going to bring good out of it. Now, the fact is that science did develop in the Western world because of the incarnation. 
because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was the Logos incarnate. And if the Logos is incarnate, that means what we would call matter or nature or whatever it is, has a plan to it. And basically, you can rely on God, and you can rely on that plan because you can stay up night after night, and you can watch those stars and watch them go around, and there's a plan to it, and you can figure the plan out. This is not like the God of Islam. Maimonides said the God of Islam is like the caliph. God of Islam is an exalted caliph. And he doesn't know when he get, he takes an evening ride in his carriage. And when he gets to the gate of the palace grounds, he doesn't know whether he's going to go left or right. Well, how can you figure out what that God's going to do? What is that God's plan? There is no plan. There's no logos. There is will. And so Allah is a Nietzschean. And your job is basically to submit to his will no matter what. And so I met a guy in Iran whose father, uh, a guy, not friends of father of a friend, uh, believed in complete predestination, complete determination. And to show what a devout Muslim he was, he would walk directly into traffic in, in Tehran. So take a guess what happened. He got hit by a car. Because God gave you a mind. And your mind can access the Logos of God, even in nature, if you persist. And this is what made the West what it is today. Has God abandoned his people? Did he abandon them then? Did he abandon them at the crucial moment when the difference between going, history going forward comes down to one letter in a Greek word? The difference between homoousion and homoousion? No. No. He didn't abandon them then. He didn't abandon them at any time in human history because God is Logos, and Logos is always there. God is like the moon. Its shape never changes, but sometimes we can't see it. And sometimes only a sliver of it is apparent to our eyes. So Hegel, the man I started off talking about, the famous German philosopher who started off as a Lutheran theology student at the time of the French Revolution, called the action of God in human history the cunning of reason, the list der Vernunft. And by that, he pretty much meant what Joseph meant when he said that God was constantly taking evil and turning it into good. That is God's action in human history. That is what human history is about. There has never been a time when that hasn't been happening, even if you couldn't see it. It was happening. So what is the most obvious form of evil in our day? It's COVID. <laughs> this comes as a surprise, I'm sure, you know, to all of you. And by that, I mean not the disease, but the biological warfare campaign, which is now being waged against the entire world in the name of combating that disease. We know that, where's, someone's not wearing a mask here. Wait a minute, they're all, no one's wearing a mask here, okay. It's a, you couldn't get in the door if you wore a mask. The oligarchs are tired of representative government and the rights those governments are supposed to guarantee and they are using the pandemic as their excuse to abolish those rights. Now, this is not 
something that hasn't happened before. Uh, think of Indiana in 2015. It was called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, where uh, this, the legislators of the state of Indiana said, you can't coerce anyone to baking a cake for a gay wedding. Well, the oligarchs didn't like that, and they landed in Indianapolis. I'm talking about Mark Benioff, the head of Salesforce, and he said, overturn your law. And the uh, stupid Mike Pence did it. Because stupid Mike Pence didn't it, it show you the, how stupid he was. Trump chose him to be vice president. Now, that's real stupidity when you become vice president. COVID is war by other means. What Mike Pence should have said is, Mr. Benioff, uh, what part of Indiana are you from? Uh, oh, you're from San Francisco. Uh, that's not in Indiana, is it? Uh, but, but were you elected to office? Uh, oh, no, you weren't elected to office. So how do you have the right to overturn the laws of the state of Indiana? Officer, arrest this man. Take him outside and chop his head off. <laughs> now, I know you don't mean that. I know, I know you mean that in a positive sense. <laughs> but that is something along that lines is what should have happened if we had representative government. But we don't. Okay? Are these oligarchs in charge of human history? Well, it seems as if they are, because they can just say jump, and the world now, it's not just a anywhere, it's the entire world says how high. This is incredible. How did this happen? They are in the process of implementing their plan to take over the entire world. It's very simple. There's no other real plausible explanation. That is what science came to. It's a religion. It's a form of control. And the control is in the hands of the people who own the instruments of science. And the scientist is now infallible. Are they, did they succeed in doing this? Did they succeed in doing this in the state of Indiana? No, they didn't. What did they create? They created a reaction to their plan. And this is just Indiana, which is not by any means the forefront of resistance to COVID, okay? Uh, Indiana University is an oligarchic institution, and as such, it proposed a ferocious imposition of vaccines on its students and a world of pain. That's their words, if the students didn't comply. But IU had to back down because the Attorney General decided that his job was to represent the people of Indiana and not Big Pharma, in spite of Eli Lilly, which runs the whole damn state anyway. Lenin said that power was lying in the streets of St. Petersburg in 1917, and he was smart enough to seize it. In our day, Governor DeSantis of Florida has shown that he can see power lying in the streets of Miami by positioning himself as the man who is going to stand up to COVID and the man who is going to make deplatforming illegal. This man made his career, okay? But <laughs> this is the same guy who made it illegal to criticize the state of Israel in any institution. So here we are faced with the issue, the same issue that no one's allowed to talk about over and over again, but consciousness is rising because we are talking about it. 
and we have framed a narrative that allows us to talk about it. And so 12 years ago is when I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and I almost died. <laughs> I almost died. Every, no one was going to talk about that. I almost went out of business. And if you read the end of Logos Rising, you understand why I didn't go out of business and how that connects with the history of Logos. You're, you're, you're looking at the cutting edge of Logos in human history. <laughs> Just to cut to the chase here. The big question is whether we can see the movement of Logos in human history and the real opportunities available here and now, or whether we will be seduced by fear or anger into choosing obsolete forms of warfare to deal with what are spiritual and cultural problems. Your action depends on your understanding of your identity. Are you a Catholic or are you a white boy? If you're a white boy, you can buy a gun and move to Idaho and wait for the FBI to come after you. <laughs> and if you think I'm making this up, Google Owen Benjamin, Ruby Ridge, and uh, you'll find out that Owen is being set up for the same thing that happened to Randy Weaver. Not a good idea. I wish well, Owen were more open to uh, logos and dialogue in this regard because we uh, have his best interest in mind and we had that little intervention about the Trinity, which is not something you should ridicule, and he got angry at us, okay? Or if you're a white boy, you can listen to Richard Spencer and wave your spear as you charge the machine gun nest and be mowed down by Roberta Kaplan and her Jewish and lesbian supporters. Or you can be a Catholic and resist identity theft and succeed in winning a battle in the culture wars like the Catholics in St. Louis where the statue of St. Louis is still standing. Those people had an identity. Because they had an identity, they could resist. Because they could resist, they could win, and they won. And nobody talks about the fact that that statue is still standing. That's the choice we have. That's the choice that is being presented to us by the God who is Logos, who is in charge of human history. Thank you.